0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen.
1: I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClendon, and I am floating picturesquely above my podcasting setup right now, Wade. Suspended by wires,
0: perhaps, but hopefully you can't tell. Kevin, I, I just got one question for you. Are you ready to get down to business? I think I am. I have a feeling this episode is going to make a man out of me. Listeners, first up... Today we're tackling the new Disney live-action adaptation, Nicky Caro's Mulan. We're also going to be continuing
1: our Summer of Darkness marathon. Last week we did uh, the neo-noir Chinatown, so we're moving on to maybe a neo-neo-noir with this week's episode. We're going to be reviewing Ryan Johnson's high school set noir,
0: Brick. Kevin, I I do have to say, I was homeschooled, and this film is, uh, from my experience, very accurate. I can't say that I ever got into any parking lot brawls when I was in high school, but that's probably because I wasn't cool enough. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 263 of Seeing and Believing. Do you know why the phoenix sits on the right hand of the emperor? She is his guardian. Is protect her.
1: that she's both beautiful and strong. Your job is to bring honor to the family. Do
0: you think you can do that? Listeners, that is a clip from Disney's Mulan. We're going to be talking about that film in a bit. Kevin, I, I know people aren't going to the theaters much these days. I haven't gone uh, very much at all this summer. And yet, it was still hard to pay $30 to see Mulan, but we did it for our listeners. We did it for them.
1: That's right. We do want to make sure that we are bringing, at least as cutting edge content as we can, given the limitations of the current situation. But I feel your pain <laughs> on that Mulan purchase. Kind of literally, it was. It, I could feel the syringe japping into my arm and sucking away uh, my... My lifeblood, just like uh, my bank account was being tapped in that moment.
0: Well, I I hope our listeners, uh, they'll appreciate the sacrifice. Hopefully, you didn't spend the whole movie counting how much each minute cost you, uh, saying, okay, you know, 90 minutes, $30, doing all that. Um, I guess it was two hours, so you get more bang for your buck. Uh, but I hope our listeners will appreciate uh, that, and I'm glad to talk about it with you. Listeners, we're going to hop into our review of Mulan later on. We're going to be talking about Ryan Johnson's Brick, a film that you can rent not for $30 but for $3. And I'm going to say right now, Kevin... I think it's worth it. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I'm not going to make any secret about the fact I really like Brick, and <laughs> I wholeheartedly endorse that sentiment.
0: Yeah. So, directed by Nikki Caro Mulan is the live-action remake or adaptation, however you want to say it, of Disney's 1998 animated to some classic. Here's the film's official synopsis. To save her ailing father from serving in the Imperial Army. A fearless young woman, played by Yifeng Liu, disguises herself as a man to battle northern invaders in China. Kevin, I'll admit, uh, this was probably the first Disney live-action remake I've been relatively interested in seeing for some time. We've we've gone through some pretty bad ones. I've watched uh, the animated version many times over the years and I, I liked it. Uh, I, I, I still watch it uh, every once in a while. Uh, I think it's a fine film to get us started. Uh, I wanna ask you, do you have any history with the 1998 version? And if so, how do you think this new film works as an adaptation? of that previous release
1: yeah I mean I don't know that I have a history with the original except insofar as I saw the original Once Upon a Time and you know I liked it okay just about like just about everybody the the training montage song is uh, (laughs) really great and you know just thinking about it makes me want to kind of like hum a few bars and get it stuck in my head all over again. Uh, I would say that Mulan overall might be kind of middle of the pack Disney as far as their their animated offerings go. I thought it was fine. Didn't really blow me away with this remake. So, So I guess going into this remake, I didn't really feel any particular emotional attachment to the original. There wasn't a whole lot of Stuff that I was really hoping would be included, or that would be smoothed over in some way, I was kind of indifferent as to those concerns as far as it goes. Um, I I think the the issue with this film, and I guess I'm, I'm tipping my hand right away that I'm I'm not crazy about it, is that I just I don't think that I appreciate that Disney and uh, Nicky Caro are kind of. Maybe trying to do something slightly more adventurous than what we saw with the Lion King remake, which was just pretty much, you know, almost a shot—not really a shot-for-shot remake—but basically they just took the original animated version and they changed the visuals, but didn't really do anything else to really uh, improve upon it or even make it seem more essential. So I do appreciate that Cairo's film really doesn't go that route there's a lot that's different about this film it does seem to really make an effort to situate itself as kind of a wuxia war epic in in the vein of you know crouching tiger hidden dragon or uh or red cliff uh or one of those films i think the problem is though that it doesn't really go far enough in doing in doing that, and it kind of ends up feeling just sort of dour, I guess might be the the way I, I would describe this film. There's not really there there's no spark to this that you would find even in the uh, the animated original film. And I guess I found myself wishing that this had been less of an adaptation or a remake of Disney's Mulan, but been more of an attempt to just tell the legend of Mulan just straight up and shed some of the baggage that the anime original imposes upon this material. I think by having this sort of hybrid approach where they're trying to hit some of the same story beats as the anime original while also making it into this more wuxia epic Film It kind of ends up getting the worst of both worlds. I don't know. I it's it doesn't seem very essential to me, even though it may not sink to the depths of something like the Lion King remake. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I I didn't like the Lion King remake. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as our listeners probably remember, and that was that just it felt like a money grab, and I realize that there are a lot of people who work on these films, and and maybe they they don't approach it that way, but that's at least you know what it did feel like. I do like some of the changes here, and uh, the production team, the screenwriters, and there's a there's a lot of them, which is kind of strange because. It doesn't feel like the story is too different from the animated features. But they did choose to uh, strip some of the songs, all of the songs. And, uh, of course, Eddie Murphy's character is is gone. He plays uh, one of the ancestral guardians uh, in the animated film, and, and so he's not there. So it is a little bit different, but you, you used the word dower, And there are a couple of scenes that I felt like were – exciting, uh, thrilling, maybe funny or charming. But overall, the film was was fine for me. Now, it probably ranks as the fourth best Disney live action adaptation that we've seen in the last, I don't know, five or six years. That's not saying very much. Uh, I do like Jungle Book and Pete's Dragon and Cinderella. Uh, this This one's just fine. It doesn't it, it it doesn't uh, make a ton of errors, but it, it doesn't do a lot to warrant its existence, and as we talk about that, hopefully we'll kind of detail this a, a little bit more, but it... It didn't take enough risks, as you were saying. It, it kind of wanted of the both, best of both worlds, and as a result, uh, kind of came away with nothing. So, yeah, kind of disappointed, because I was I was excited about this film to see what it could do and to see if, if Disney could stretch its wings, and uh, sadly, it, they, they didn't do that.
1: Well, it, it kind of seems like Caro and uh, her creative team didn't really quite... Know what what makes a a wuxia picture kind of work. You know the all all of the the um, supernatural elements or, or the the heightened reality elements might be a better word for it. You know, the the famous scene from Crouching Tiger where the we have these two swordsmen and they're they're fighting in a bamboo forest and they're kind of like running along stalks of bamboo and it's it's physically impossible but it's beautiful and there's there's some some storytelling and character development that is sort of woven into these action sequences that make them more than just a cool fight scene and i think that in mulan it kind of it feels like it appropriates some of the tropes of these other films, but it still kind of uses them as part of an overarching, very, very Western action movie understanding of how and why uh, action uh, functions in a movie. It feels it it ends up feeling a little bit like a you know by by trying to have those two approaches combined into one, it feels a little bit like kind of a boring war movie with weird physics. There's there's just not a whole lot of the, the whiz-bang action because Caro is going for a little bit more artistry with her approach, but that artistry gets muted by the fact that we're kind of just seeing pretty standard action movie heroics here. And not that that's bad, but just it seems like she doesn't really understand why she's having characters run on walls and, and do all of these other things. Other than that, those have been, those sorts of things have been in other movies. And so they need to be in this movie. And I think that that approach maybe speaks to a problem, a larger problem with the movie as a whole with, which is that it just seems like they're trying to hit certain beats. They're, they're trying to create something that ticks off boxes rather than functions on its whole as a work of, uh, as a satisfying work of art and that extends maybe to the storytelling as well
0: yeah yeah no some of those action sequences and in this film uh, they talk about the chi and how she operates within the chi and she can do things that are physically impossible uh, there, there is this line between oh wow that's that's fantastic and I use fantastic literally and oh that's cartoonish and oh that's maybe maybe you could say cheesy there were a couple of sequences where you just you kind of laugh and you're not supposed to laugh so it goes with kind of the meaning behind some of those moves as well as the the techniques behind them uh, to be able to make them work there are a couple of shots that i think were were pretty good there's some tilts There are some shots where the camera is either upside down or moves upside down, kind of rotates on a 90-degree angle at other times. There's some blur shots, some characters kind of coming through the desert. Uh, So there is skill involved in the film. Uh, It's just not always employed correctly, and uh, it didn't really make these action sequences pop. I... I kind of got bored with a lot of them, and and it happens more and more with big blockbusters. It, it shouldn't happen, but it definitely happened here. I did want to talk, too, about some of the themes in the film. And originally, with the animated cartoon, uh, the animated film, it wasn't received all too well in China because it was a largely Western story about individualism, and there are, are benefits to that. But there was this kind of clash with – the cultures in that film and in this movie I, I feel like uh, there was this move or this shift to kind of correct that so it is a very uh, individualistic tale and in that Mulan her character she has to uh, grow as a person be herself and be herself in a society that does not view women in the way that um, some sections of our society uh, do and so she has to overcome that and the film talks about her overcoming that not just for herself, but also the sacrifice that's there for her and her family and her community. And there's talk, too, of shaming uh, her village. And one of the, uh, I think, best pieces of production design in this movie uh, is the village that she lives in, and they're almost in this, this coliseum-like building. It's this circular structure, I should say. Of course, there's no roof on it. And they all kind of live there, and they 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 live their lives out in the open of each other. And I thought that was a great representation of how these individuals are connected to a particular group of people and that what they do has consequences, honor, or shame in that culture. But I don't think the film really dug into that. It, it seemed like, okay, yeah, do it for for the people around you. Do it for your family. But there's nothing there to emphasize that. And I'm reminded – Kevin of, of uh, the, the farewell. It made my top 10 less, list last year and it deals with similar themes. And of course, the main character of Aquafina, she has grown up in the States and so she has a particular perspective and she meets her family in, in uh, China. They have a particular perspective and yet we see the good and maybe even the negatives of both and, and how they each have something to teach each other. Uh, we don't get that type of nuance here, and so I think that's a little bit disappointing too.
1: Yeah, I mean, not being Chinese, I don't know if – like I'm, I'm wary of trying to comment too specifically on whether this feels like an authentic representation of a certain cultural – Outlook on women's roles. But I I guess I can comment though on the way this movie tries to dramatize some of those aspects. I and I think by looking at the ways that the film falls short in those areas, to me that suggests certain things, perhaps, about the authenticity of its other portrayals that I don't have firsthand experience with. So there's kind of this problem with live act with. Latter-day Disney, I guess, where a lot of their stories kind of have this very market-tested quality to them, where they sort of decide, okay, we want to make sure that we have a certain representation in our film, or we want to make a more feminist retelling of a Disney princess story in a certain way. And they kind of set out with that in mind. It does feel like that affects the shape of the story, so that they're trying to hit these... These notes that will appeal to, you know, an audience in 2020 that will uh, satisfy kind of what's in the um, political and social mainstream, but they do it in a very, very almost cartoonish kids movie way where it's it doesn't feel true i think about moments uh from the beauty and the beast remake where you know Belle is sitting down with a little girl and she's like showing her a book and kind of teaching her to read and you know some some stuffed shirt comes up and goes what teaching a girl to read isn't one enough and it's just it's very it's very obvious it feels very much like there's not been a whole lot of attention paid to the way that patriarchy actually manifests itself in a society, and the and the insidious ways that that can work upon uh, the groups that are oppressed by it. In this movie, there's something similar that happens where you know at the beginning of the movie, there's this sequence where young Mulan is chasing a chicken around and it leads her up onto a roof and it's very dangerous. And she slips off the roof and she pulls off some, some acrobatic move in order to make it to the ground safely. And her her father breathes a sigh of relief, but everyone else around her is kind of like gives her, gives her this dirty look. Like how dare she pull off this amazing acrobatic move just to save her life and that's kind of the bum note that i'm talking about where it seems like the movie is laying it on so thick and with such kind of almost a caricatured approach to these dynamics that it makes me distrust the authenticity of its cultural representations as well as if is it also giving us this very two-dimensional uh portrayal of chinese culture as well and and the legends uh arising out of that culture and that makes me uneasy and it it doesn't speak well i guess of the overall creative vision behind the film
0: yeah yeah and and like you said i don't want to reach too far because i am unfamiliar uh with certain cultural norms. So there is this perspective that I definitely bring or this uh, lack of perspective, maybe it's a better way to say it. Um, but even even the ideas that they talk about or suggest in the movie, uh, there, there's not a depth to them. Uh, it's, it's just kind of, um, I guess you could say lip service for some of these ideas and these, these bigger themes that connect to the hearts of the characters, that mean something to them. And if it means something to these characters, then it should probably mean something to us, or at least we should get a taste of that, and we don't really get uh, get a taste of that. So I, I definitely think that's a problem. One aspect of the film that I that I liked, and I thought was a nice change, uh, was the character of, uh, that Gong Li plays. Now, she plays this individual, this woman. Uh, she's called a witch throughout the film. Uh, she has power, and... Uh, She's been scorned by the world. She's an outcast because she's tried to be who she uh, feels like she needs to be. And as a result, uh, now she wants to hurt other people and she's attached herself to the the main villain in the picture. And I I like that. I I thought that there was some depth there um, versus uh, just revenge or a sort of shallow – Quest for power, uh, but instead uh, we see how uh, the forces affecting Mulan uh, have affected other people. Now, like you mentioned, uh, they're really not much to cling to. It's all very kind of cliche, but I appreciate them doing that and adding that into the um, into the screenplay, which provides some. Opportunities for some changes and some twists later on in the movie, which uh, I I thought were were pretty good. So I, this is not a film that that I I, I dislike. I, I think it's fine. I think it's okay. Uh, it it certainly could be worse, um, but there are some uh, some things about the film, some aspects that uh, make me wish that the rest of the movie was a little more consistent.
1: I agree that Gong Li's character is an interesting. Uh, addition or change from the from the animated version that that most audiences are familiar with because it does it seems like that is something that kind of arose organically out of a, an attempt to uh, tell the story but just do something a little bit different and I appreciate it for doing that I do kind of it, it it's she's her character is odd mostly because it. Seems like she's sort of the primary villain, and yet we kind of have uh, Jason Scott Lee's Bori Khan, who's kind of the the warlord who is leading this assault on China. Um, it, it's it's odd that he is still in this movie, not because he's not compelling in his own way. I think uh, Jason Scott Lee gives uh, a very good performance as as far as it goes, but it just seems. On in terms of just the way the the screenplay is structured and the stories being told here, it does kind of seem like he's almost ancillary, and that the real interest here is the the dichotomy that is set up between Mulan and her view of how her her talents uh, intersect with her duties versus how Gong Li's character Shang Shaneng, uh how her. How she sees her own place and the best use of her own powers. I think that's an interesting contrast that is set up that isn't paid off to its its very fullest, which is too bad because it is it is it does have some intriguing notes.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and that's kind of goes back to that word you used, dower. Uh, just a film that sees some sparks for me. Uh, but mostly, kind of gets lost in the, uh, I guess, mechanics of this of the story and and the the script. Um, I'd like to see a little more life in that. Listeners, that is our review of Mulan. It's currently playing on Disney Plus. If you purchase it, so so if you plan to watch it, definitely let us know what you think. You can tweet us at C Pod at C, Believe P O D. You can also email us, seeing and believing, capc at gmail.com. Kevin, I will say this, uh, we've got a lot of the Disney live-action remakes, and there is one rumored uh, from David Lowry. It's a Peter Pan uh, remake or adaptation. And that has me a little excited. I liked I like many of his movies and I like Pe- Peach Dragon. So Maybe that one will make its way to us and, and turn out well.
1: Yeah, we'll see. I, I like Lowry, I liked Pete's Dragon okay. I, <laughs> I just I do kind of wish that my favorite filmmakers and actors would just try to avoid getting sucked into the, the Disney event horizon as much as mm-hmm. possible, but you know, you can't have everything and I'll I'll probably be interested to see what he does with that project.
0: Hey, a guy's gotta eat. The guy's got to make some money, uh, and then go back and, and make uh, the old man and the gun part two. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Listeners, we'll be back in just a moment. We're going to be reviewing Ryan Johnson. Speaking of people who hopped on the Disney bandwagon, Ryan Johnson's brick. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> that song is it's that kind of night by alf we want to take an opportunity and say a big thanks to all of you who support us via our patreon campaign it's quick and it's easy to support the podcast and it's something that we're, we're just thankful for you can hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast we've got a number of different donation levels and one of our favorites is the what can you buy for five dollar level you know kevin it's been a busy week. Every week, I look forward to hearing your answer, especially this week. What can someone buy for five bucks? Oh well. B-
1: before I say, it, I have to ask, why is why especially this week? Is there a special occasion
0: that I'm unaware of? You know, it's just been a, it's been a he- it's been kind of a busy week, and paid thirty dollars. You got to pay thirty dollars you know, for the lawn. Uh, <laughs> I just need a little pick-me-up. That looms large, and that looms
1: large in your consciousness, I can tell.
0: So, what can you buy for Fudbox?
1: Uh, well five bucks so i mean you know it, it's, it has been a busy week and for those of you who are you know working on the go and have to have you know video conferences with coworkers mm-hmm. or you know zoom meetings that sort of thing uh five bucks would get you uh little finger puppets that you can put right up to your uh the webcam on your laptop or whatever and you know you can kind of dress it up to look like you so that mm-hmm. it looks like you're keeping it professional during your work from home uh, even though you're you know, just wearing your, your pajamas all day. So wow. it seems like a good investment.
0: Yeah, you just kind of nod your finger every once in a while, let people know that you're there, you're paying attention. You know, I mentioned this, and this it felt like I mentioned this years ago, but it was just a few months ago, uh, that with wearing face masks, uh, my ventriloquist act has become much easier and you commented on—I I posted on Facebook. You commented and said it's easy too because you can put one on the puppet as a sign of solidarity. And it, man, I'm telling you, my act has gone through the roof with face masks.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm—I'm I'm happy to hear it that you're—that you're. That you're- Budding ventriloquism career continues to grow apace. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, I and and it gives me some time. I really have to learn how to be a ventriloquist in this period uh, because it won't last forever. One day we'll take off the masks, and I will either be seen as uh, authentic or a fraud, and and that's a fear of mine. Oh,
1: well, <laughs> i I hope I hope that when that day comes, you'll have grown far enough in your skills that that won't be necessary, that that. <laughs> That that fear will not be borne out.
0: I'll be ready. <laughs> I'll be I'll be ready, bor- born for this moment. Uh, it'll be a Bill and Ted moment uh, to reference last week's episode. Listeners, hop on <laughs> over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast and support the podcast. We really appreciate it. In just a moment, we'll be back. We're going to hop in to Brick, Continue our Summer of Darkness series. Brendan? Emily?
1: I really screwed
0: up. Screwed up how? The brick. What?
1: I, I didn't know it was bad, but the pin's on it now. You gotta help me.
0: Slow down now. Man. This isn't good? No. Emily said words I didn't know. Tell me if they catch. Brick? No. Tug? Tug might be a drink. Like milk and vodka. Pin? You know the kingpin. Dope runner, right? Big time. What are you gonna do? She asked for my help. I just want to know she's okay. So what's first? I'm gonna start shaking things up.
1: We're here in the second segment, and I'm a, I, I was trying to think for a while, Wade, of how I could incorporate some some good old hardboiled detective slang into this intro because it figures so prominently in the movie that we're about to review, and I just couldn't really do it. I I know Raymond Chandler. And I guess at some point a guy just has to admit his, his limitations, but I just have to get that out there to know to let everyone know that I, I did try and I wanted so badly to do it, but I figured it would be better not to even try than to do a terrible job of it.
0: <laughs> I You know, that goes against our philosophy, 263 episodes in, Kevin, so I'm really... Um, wow, a lot of respect over here to to just refraining from that.
1: Yeah, I mean, they say that you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. But what they don't say about that is with all those shots that you don't take, you also miss 100% of the ridicule you would have had from missing them. So, you know, <laughs> I feel like it kind of bounces out in the end.
0: Right. Well, and that quote supposes that you would make any shots. Right. So, (laughs) correct. Yeah. So it, I, I, it works out. We've, we've, we've had our lumps in the past with uh, impressions, and um, it's best to just move forward.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Move forward. Keep keep our eyes toward the future. That sort of thing. Um, I am excited to talk about the movie in the second segment. Ryan Johnson's Brick. uh, I believe it had to release in two thousand six, and it was Johnson's. First feature film, which is quite impressive when you, when you consider just how fully realized his vision of the noir genre is. This is a film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Brendan as the typical noir gumshoe with one small exception. This gumshoe is in <laughs> high school. All of the people around him are in, are in high school. And even though they all have names like The Pin... Hugger, the brain, dode, very noirish names, they all exist in this context that most of us, if not all of us, are at least passingly familiar with. Homeschooled or no way.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, uh it, it's wild to me because you think about break. And someone were to explain it to you, and and maybe there are people listening who have not watched the film, and they're just like, what? A noir mystery set in high school, and the dialogue is is what? It just doesn't seem like it would work. And, I mean, it's no surprise that Johnson had this screenplay lying around for years and years, and no one wanted to pick it up. But somehow he made it work. I I mean, it's just really amazing. It it, it really is.
1: It really is. And I think part of the reason is that Johnson uh, doesn't really, he doesn't do what you might expect with with that setup. It sounds like any one of a number of subpar teen movies where the entire movie is tied up in sort of this gimmick where it tries to get by solely on the charm of having high schoolers do things that aren't normally high schoolish, but they're still kind of doing it in the setting that we're all familiar with. In this case, though, Johnson essentially plays the tropes straight. Brendan is trying to solve the mystery of the murder of his ex-girlfriend. He's attempting to gather facts. He's interviewing uh, subjects. He's uh, trying to get to the bottom of essentially this crime network. So that's not uh, that's not cutesy in the way that you might expect a typical teen movie to go. Johnson obviously has a deep reverence for the way noir movies work and a deep understanding of why they work. So to get us started, Wade, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. As we've gone through the series, we've seen different twists on noir tropes, and even though they all share many similarities, they kind of carry their own little spins on those familiar elements. This one does that as well. My question for you is, watching this, uh, how did you find those, those elements to work in this picture? Do you kind of share my viewpoint that it works really well and that, the fact that it plays it straight helps to reveal certain undercurrents in the genre that you hadn't noticed were there before. Or did you? Would you take issue with my characterization? And would you say that it kind of is a little bit cutesy for your taste?
0: <laughs> no, no, I love it. It and it's it is fascinating. Like you, like you say, this is not uh, a parody of a noir thriller or noir uh, mystery, but instead. It, Johnson he plays it straight and I I very much appreciate how someone this young and inexperienced can put together a story as realized as this with characters that you actually care about and an individual who can compose images like the ones that we get in, in break and so if we're talking about the noir subgenre. If we're talking about what it does to sort of maintain its connection to that, I mean, we could we could look at the unbalanced framing. We could look at the na- use of natural lighting uh, to create a, a sense of like realism and a shadowy, dark uh, effect. Uh, we we really experience the story uh, through. The visuals—you so could you could watch this movie with the sound off and really understand the world or even the situation. Uh, the camera shots that are high and that are low, uh, just a dynamic of power and also vulnerability. So this is a world where you have characters at different places in society, and that's what I felt like it emphasized extremely well within the the war uh, genre, uh, that you do have this criminal network, but there are people at the top, uh, and there's not only just people at the bottom, but there's people that fill the middle, And the the dynamics of these compositions, as well as the story and the dialogue, help to highlight a a whole society, this underground group that really kind of runs things behind the scenes uh, and that, in a sense, connects to this overall darkness that we've explored in noir films and this sense of fate. And inevitability. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot to appreciate. I this is the second time I watched the film. I liked it. I liked it a lot the first time. I liked it much more this time. And, and part of it is because of the series, seeing uh, how it uses some of those elements from uh, previous noir films. It's, I mean, it's great. And and it 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 almost it's fascinating because it almost takes Chinatown and and it adds new wrinkles to that neo noir setting. Uh, so yeah, just a great film. So I I, uh, I echo your thoughts.
1: Yeah, it's it's does the ending of this film does have a very similar vibe to the ending of Chinatown? Just the the sense of something being lost and uh, a deep weariness and sadness that kind of comes over the the character at at the very end. That's definitely the case here. I think watching this film revealed a side of noir that. Had mostly remained in the background for me, which is the the sense of there kind of not being an adult in charge, so to speak. You watch a lot of noirs, and it feels as if, uh, whether you know God or a a, a righteous authority figure or whoever, however you might want to put it, is kind of absent from the picture. There we see a lot of men and women sort of out for themselves, and there's not really anything governing the world. The world is sort of this dark place and we're all just sort of trying to make our way through it. Sort of like how we talked about the themes that were brought forth in Chinatown last week. In this one, Johnson finds a really interesting way of literalizing that in that this is obviously a high school. These are all teenagers or all the all the protagonists are teenagers. So you kind of expect there to be adults around, you know. There'll be teachers, there'll be parents, there'll be coaches, you know, however it might be, you kind of, this is a context where you would expect those authority figures to be present and to be exerting their influence in some way. But for the vast majority of the picture, there are no adults. I think there are two scenes in this film where an adult is even on screen. One of them is the, uh, the assistant vice principal, I think, who basically has this really fun twist on the the angry police chief scene where you know the the detective comes in and the the police chief reads in the riot act and calls him a renegade and they have this confrontation. Uh so that's what that by itself is just a really amusing scene. But that's one instance where an adult shows up. And the other instance is where this uh drug kingpin's mother sits them down and like serves them all cereal and orange juice and kind of is very motherly, and that's also kind of a nice undercutting of the the hard bitten uh, nature of these characters. Other than those two scenes, though, the movie is completely absent of adults. there's There are these chase scenes through uh, the grounds, the campus of this high school that these characters go to. and there's just they they're almost eerily deserted. There are no adults. There's nobody stepping in to stop what seems to be uh, this this violence and, and this uh, these abuses that are going on. And to me that there's something about that that feels quintessentially noir, that other noirs couldn't really, get at in the same way because obviously in those movies they're all they're all adults there's nobody who's just like a clear obvious oh yes this is a logical authority figure for these for all of these characters in brick the the parents the teachers the adults the forces of stability are nowhere to be found and that too feels very noirish.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's this lawlessness uh, to the entire ordeal. I, I mean, yeah, it's wonderful. I I think there are two shots that reflect uh, the influences of this uh, film, or at least uh, pay uh, pay some uh, service to them. Uh, one is where Brendan is walking across the football field, and for a second, it just it felt like a shot. Uh, that you would see in a John Hughes film, maybe the end of The Breakfast Club, where these, these characters are kind of walking on this football field and it it just highlights high school life. You know, this is where it happens. This is where it all goes down on the football field. Uh, but it takes new meaning in in Brick. And then there's another scene where Brendan is essentially saying goodbye to his ex-girlfriend. We know at the beginning of the film that she has died um, because we see her her body and then the film kind of goes back a few days. And so we get some conversations between her and Brendan and eventually uh, she says goodbye and she walks away. And the, the shot almost reminded me of something um, that we saw at the end of uh, The Third Man, a film that we almost talked about this week. And I, I think it will get talked about on this podcast before the series is up. Uh, but we see the influences there. And I really also appreciate – how Brendan's character is fleshed out. And um, Levitt could have played this uh, stoically. And he is a stoic character. But in, in the dialogue and in the facial expressions and in the resolve of his facial expressions, uh, we discover something deeper about him. We see his isolation. We see his pain. And at the same time, we see his pride. He thinks that he can figure this out on his own. He hides his girlfriend's body because he doesn't want the police to interfere. I mean, that takes a lot of, of pride. And he walks around and a lot of the shots, you know, his hands are inside this, uh, this cream, this tan jacket. And he's, he's, he's just, he's gloomy, um, but he's also resolute, and I think that his performance at the center of this film really works well. And and it's it's amazing too, you know. Johnson didn't just put together a great screenplay and a great film, but he casted some incredible people that went on to do bigger things. And uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt, obviously, like he's he was around before this. Um, this seems like a one of his turns towards more mature work. I know he's done some films before this, but it really does seem like a big turn for him. And then some of the other casts it, they're, they're all really great. And all these cast members just chew up their scenes. I mean, every single one of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, this was probably the film that really turned me on to Levitt as, as – a real talent uh, of his, of his generation. I think he's just fantastic in this film, and it really showed uh, just what he could do when he really had a, a a meaty, interesting role to to sink his teeth into. Brendan in this film is yeah he like you say he's he's resolute he's dogged um there's there's this, you get the sense that there's this vulnerability behind him that the all the tough guy swagger that johnson puts into the dialogue is not just there because johnson wants to make a a uh, noir pastiche it's there because it's it's hiding something it's masking something and i think again this is where the brilliance of the film really reveals itself is that it's not just a collection of noir tropes. Like let's just make a noir movie, except it's in high school. Johnson is actually thoughtfully considered, well, why do the characters in noir stories talk this way? What, what explanation could there be for them to be so seemingly callous towards, towards other characters, why they would, affect this air of nonchalance when confront confronted with depravity of various sorts. And the answer he comes up with is, well, they're, they're trying to shield themselves, shield their vulnerability, uh, mask the fact that they care and something about putting that sort of persona onto a high school kid. Who's uh, a little bit more, obviously somebody who's not fully, uh, grown up yet somebody who's not really entered into the adult world that quality coupled with all these hard-boiled tropes kind of makes that reading of of noir characters snap into place and suddenly make sense in a way that it while it was perhaps always there in uh classic noir wasn't really uh highlighted it as strongly as it is in this film. And again, I think that's Ryan just Ryan Johnson just has a really great talent for zeroing in on those elements that he can foreground and really use as a meaningful element rather than just as window dressing to make him look like a clever director.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's uh, something that we you know we talked about last week with Chinatown is the use of uh, POV shots. It seemed like Uh, Something a little bit different from uh, the classic Hollywood uh, noirs. And uh, we see greater use of POV there. Uh, Something I noticed too about this film are uh, all the cuts... And this is not something that, you know, Johnson invented, but all the cuts between shots. So you have a singular shot of a character performing an action, and we cut forward maybe less than a second, maybe half of a second. And we we pause for a second on on that shot, and then we cut forward again. And it just kind of emphasizes the fragmentary nature of these characters and of what's going on uh, in their world. I also love the scene at the end where they are in in the basement – and we hear this fight happening above them, and uh, it's all off camera. but uh just just hearing it and 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 feeling it move through the scene. We know it's on the way. Uh, man, it's just fantastic. and it, like I mentioned before, it just kind of blows my mind the maturity of. Of of Johnson here with his blocking, with his pans, with his camera movements. Uh, there's another great sweet sequence where uh, uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt is talking to the brain, and they are in the library, and they're kind of in this this corner where there's a desk set up, and the scene is filmed uh, through shelves of books, and it's it's lit uh, naturally, at least it feels natural uh, with a lamp light, and um, and it man, it's just it makes those scenes pop. And I I think if you have the snappy dialogue, you have the noir story, but you don't have the technical qualities to emphasize that, this could just come off in a wrong way. I mean, it could just come off terribly. But all those combinations together produce something great. Uh, and then also in the great traditions of of the of the noirs, um, this is a story that. It's kind of hard to follow if you're not paying attention. You do have to pay attention. And even then, it might take two viewings to get the whole thing. And I'm thinking of something like uh, The Big Sleep, um, even The Maltese Falcon, uh, these stories that are complicated. But that complication is used to to further highlight something about this world. Uh, so it's kind of all there. And um, Johnson just kind of takes it to a new level. He makes a step forward.
1: Yeah, and something that complexity also highlights is and I don't want to keep harping on this but it really does highlight just the the fact that noir characters are are in over their heads right and that's something that is that's integral to to noir as a whole so it's it's I'm not saying anything new by pointing that out but again by kind of putting that onto high school students, it feels almost as if the weight of all those complications of the violence that they see and the all, all the darkness that uh, Brendan is trying to deal with in getting to the bottom of all this, the weight of that seems like it's too much for a high schooler's shoulders. And that really brings to the for the the sadness, I guess, at the heart of noir, where it's not just sort of, enjoying the, the stylishness and kind of getting a very cynical look at the dark heart of mankind, so to speak. It's there, There's a deep mournfulness to it that we saw uh, really played up in Chinatown as well, but there's a different quality to it when you see it uh, acted out by what are essentially children. Pity, I guess, is what is what you get from Brick. You see that these these are characters who are, you know, the the things they do aren't always admirable, and they there are horrible things, but they're also children, and you pity them for being in a world that both encourages them to to act in those ways, and also for being in a world that just contains those things and asks them to deal with it as part of growing up.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting uh, when you watch something like Chinatown, uh, there, there is this empty feeling you get whenever you finish. It's just kind of a sadness, uh, the, a depression of the story. Here, there is a more hopeful note in that – and we'll get – this is spoilery, um, but the, the – the individuals who are responsible, uh, justice is served. Uh, they're, they're caught. Uh, they get what's coming to them. But even within that, there's this darkness. There's that scene where, uh, the pen is being beat to death by Tugger. I mean, he's just being beat to death and Brendan's character is kind of watching him. Uh, and he's, he's wandering away and we can hear, uh, the pen screaming for help. He's played great by Luke uh, Haas, who's we see him crop up in other films. He usually plays a side character, but he's really great here. And he's, he's crying for help and he's crying for help. And, and Brendan leaves so he can get away. And, and technically, you know, you, you can make a case that people have died um, because of what this individual has done. And that turns on him. And so now he's the one suffering, uh, but it's it's still like you said it's a lot for a high school student to to handle. And at the end of the film, the one chance at, at maybe a new start uh, that's dashed to the ground. And so it ends, and the bad people are put away, but at what cost? Uh, and it's it's still really sad. Uh, so I mean, it's a, it really is a great ending, and I think all the threads come together very very well.
1: Yeah, that's definitely true. Well, listeners, that is our review of Ryan Johnson's 2006 film Brick. If you've seen this film and have any thoughts on it or on film noir as a whole, if there are any noirs that you've been watching on your own recently, definitely let us know. You can email us or tweet us at the addresses that we've provided earlier in the show. Uh, And I guess that's it for this episode. We are getting close to the end of our film noir series, Wade, Uh, but that doesn't mean we've... We've got a couple of really great uh, entries to to wrap things up, I think.
0: Yeah, no, a couple of really good ones. I guess we could say, that involve Orson Welles. So we've kind of been moving forward. And now we, we get back. We go back a little bit. And uh, that's going to be a lot of fun, some good conversations. Uh, so, yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely excited about it. Listeners, thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by com. Make sure to rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week – helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later.
1: You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculturecom network.
0: Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.